Well, my name's John Muller. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to get to fill in for Brad as he takes a much deserved, deserved break. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to gather to sing of the birth of Christ and now to dive into the word together. It was a Friday, September 17, 2004. I was about to embark on another geocaching expedition. Geocaching is like uh, treasure hunting with a GPS. People hide things really, literally all over the world. And they put online the coordinates and you have a GPS. You put the coordinates in and you go try to find those treasures. It's a lot of fun. Kevin McCullum had introduced me to geocaching about three months earlier. And I was, yeah, I was hooked. The treasure that I was looking for was was an ammo box located on top of the North Twin Mountain at the northern end of the Weddington Trail there in Ozark National Forest. So there's two mountains. If you go out to North Street and head west past I-49, go about 16 miles, you'll come to Lake Weddington. Right across the north of that road is the trailhead, there's, uh, and it, it winds its way. There's the mountain in the south, and then there's another one to the north of that, and that's where this geocache that I was going to go conquer. There was an alternate place described on the, on the geocache page um, that, that would have you park about midway up, um, it's kind of off trail, but it was close to the trail, and it would cut the trail in about in, into half. But I wanted to explore the whole trail. So from the trailhead, I was there. I had my GPS. I looked down. It was about four and a half miles to the, to the treasure, and I thought, well, I, I can do this. But I, what I didn't realize until after I was pretty well committed is that that 4.5 miles was how the crow flies, in other words, that was from the trailhead to a straight line. And this trail actually went all over the place, up and down and around. And um, well, following the trail, it was actually closer to eight miles over some pretty serious terrain. When I made it to the geocache, my knees were throbbing, my water supply was low, and sunset was only a couple hours away. So after, after logging the geocache, took a little rest and food, I decided to try a shorter, a shorter and flatter way back. But it would mean going off trail. So I came down on the, off the east side of that, of that mountain down to a little plain. I went toward the Illinois River. I soon discovered that uh, I had made a mistake. I had gotten into some really thick brush that I had to plow my way through for about a mile. Just, I mean, it was brutal briars. It was, it was hard. Looking at the time, I knew that my wife was either going to be worried sick or ready to give me a strong kick in the behind. Maybe both. I called her, give her a heads up that it would likely be pretty late when I got home. Issue. My knees were getting worse, and I had decided I needed to go. I needed to get back on the trail. So I was I was across from the that southern mountain. It's not really a mountain; it's a big, large hill. But I made my way back up that 
up that mountain and and um, I was struggling. I knew that there was no way that I was going to get back to the to the trailhead. My knees were just too bad. I found a road on my GPS and slowly kind of shuffled my way there. And I called Angela again, told her where I was, tried to describe uh, how to find me. I, there wasn't a number on this road, but it was it was there, and I was sitting right there in the middle of this road waiting. So she uh, she was pregnant with Bethany at the time. She gathered up our two young boys, hopped in the car, and came to rescue me. But she couldn't find me. She went up a couple different dirt roads to no avail. She talked again on the phone, and she went over to the park and found the park ranger and said, Hey, my, my husband's out there in the woods. You want to talk to him? So I got on the phone with the park ranger and I said, hey, let me tell you exactly where I am. And so I gave him the coordinates to where I was. I mean, just right there. All he has to do, they've got GPSs, surely they'll just come get me. He said, well, we don't use those those kind of units in our GPSs. But don't worry, we'll we'll find you. Um, About that time, my wife's phone died. I looked down at my phone and it's about to die. And I'm thinking, oh my I'm lost. No one knows where I am. So I thought, well, let me call Kevin McCollum. He got me into this. <laughs> so I called him, and I didn't reach him. I got his voice message, voicemail. And so I left him my coordinates. Okay, I'm at north X and west this. And then about that time, my phone died. So I'm sitting on the road. I have no more water. I can't move. My knees are just, I mean, they're shot. And it looks like no one, no one is coming. Darkness had set in. I was in a desperate situation. I needed rescuing. People in the days of the prophet Micah, that we're going to read about today, we're, we're in a similar situation. Now, they didn't have GPSs, but they were, they were about to be in trouble. The Israelites were divided into two kingdoms at the time, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. It was a, it was a time of prosperity, but the situation would, would soon change. Darkness was, was coming in. Micah prophesied during the reign of three kings in Judah. The first was King Jotham. He was a righteous king, but, but he allowed the people to, to worship other idols. And he allowed them to even engage in the sinful practices oftentimes associated with idolatry. The second king was King Ahaz. Now this guy, he, he reigned for about 20 years and he was wicked to the core, bad to the bone. This guy, he shut down the temple worship there in Jerusalem. He himself erected idolatrous temples throughout the land in the high places. He even offered his sons as a burnt offering to the foreign gods. Third king was Hezekiah. And like his grandfather Jotham, he was a righteous king. He 
reopened the temple. He reestablished worship. He he had the idols and the high places torn down, and he, he called the people to reform. Yet they had traveled too far into the woods. They had gone down the trail of sin too far. The first chapter of Micah, he, he prophesies that God's going to come down from heaven and be a witness against the people. Imagine that. God coming down and saying, all right, here, I've got, I've got the evidence and I'm, I'm bringing it against you. He's going to expose their idolatry, their deceit, their greed and their covetousness, all the immoral practices. See, everything had, had become corrupt. The political, business, and religious leaders were, I mean, they were incurably deceitful in that day. The poor were being exploited and oppressed. Injustice was common. God's word was forgotten. Chapter 2, God says that, that he's about to bring judgment and disaster upon the people. In fact, he prophesies that in, there in the north, Samaria, the capital of Israel, would be destroyed. The Syrians would come and take them over. And then Jerusalem was not far behind them. Chapter 3, this is, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, because of you, Zion, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. The people were lost in the woods. Darkness was about to envelop them. They were helpless. They were desperate. They needed a rescuer, a savior. That brings us to our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, Micah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, and there's, a, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, page 778. If you don't have a Bible, we'd encourage you that just take that Bible home with you. We'd love to, we'd love to gift you uh, with that this Christmas season. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let's, let's read Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Father, in this brief time together as we study your word, God, would reveal afresh our need for rescue, our need for a savior and king. God, we come to seek you, to behold you, to know you, to 
to worship you, to live for you. God, open our eyes and our hearts that we might see wonderful things in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. I think if I could summarize this passage, if I could just say in one sentence, give it a kind of a main theme, it would be something like this. We're all in a desperate situation and need a king to rescue us. We're all in a desperate situation and need a king to rescue us. As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to answer kind of two key questions, two really important questions. And this will be kind of our outline. The first question, who is this king? Who is this king? And number two, what will the king do? What will the king do? So first, who is this king? Who is this king? The passage begins with a warning that a siege is imminent. This darkness is coming. The ultimate humiliation will, will come to the king of Judah. He'll be, he'll be struck on, the, to the, on, a, on his cheek with a, with a rod. This was a very humbling, humiliating thing for someone to be struck on, on the cheek. You remember Jesus himself was struck on the cheek. It's possibly a reference to the Assyrian army maybe coming against King Hezekiah. Verse 3, we see that this, this people, they're, going to be, they're actually going to be given up. They will be conquered and they will actually go into exile for a time. But a remnant, a remnant's going to return and will be ruled by a righteous king. Well, who is this king? Well, first, I want you to see that this king comes from, from a humble place. The king comes from a humble place. He's from a little town called Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem was a small village. It's about three miles maybe south of Jerusalem. It's the birthplace of a guy named Boaz and Ruth. You may know their story. It's the place where Jesse lived. He raised his sons. And his youngest son was born there in that city. His son was named David. It's not a very well-known town. Maybe, maybe something like uh, Wesley or Wheeler or Sonora or Hogeye in northwest Arkansas. Something outside of maybe Fayetteville, the, the bigger cities. It's a town on the outskirts. But this is where the king would come. He'd come from a, from a humble place. You know, in the passage in Matthew that Scott read earlier, see, Herod was trying to locate the birthplace of Jesus. He gathered together all those chief priests and, and scribes and, and asked them, hey, where, where, is, where is this child that was born? Where, where was he born? Well, they gathered together. What did they do? They looked back to this very passage in Micah. Micah would prophesy that this king would come from the city of Bethlehem. It's interesting to note too, Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem actually means, or was thought to mean house of bread, house of bread. Think about this, 700 years before the birth of, birth of Jesus, the Messiah, Micah would promise that there in the house of bread would come forth one who would be known as the bread of life. 
Christmas promise was kept. The king was born in the humble town of Bethlehem. Second, the king comes not, not just from a humble place. He comes from a humble yet royal lineage. At the end of verse 2, Micah says that the king's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This phrase would have been well known to the people in that day. They would remember, they would look back and they would remember King David. They would remember Samuel anointing him king. They'd probably remember even specifically 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to these, listen to these verses. This is God speaking. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, David was wanting to build a temple for the Lord. God said, no, that's not for you. But I'm going to establish your kingdom. It's going to come after you. And I'm going to raise up a, a lineage from you and establish a kingdom that's going to last not just, not just for decades, not just for centuries, forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Psalm 89 Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. See, Micah's promise, it looks back to the promise that God had made to David. Remember when when God called Samuel to appoint a new king after after he had rejected Saul? So Samuel, he gathers up his things, and he goes down to Bethlehem. And he goes and he finds Jesse there. And he says, hey, bring your sons. We're going to have a little, little sacrifice. We're going to worship the Lord together. So Jesse brings his sons. And Samuel is getting ready to, to anoint one of his sons king. So one by one, from the oldest, you can imagine the, the, the strong comes and... Samuel lets him pass by. Then the second, then the third, goes through all of the sons. He says, this, is this it? Do you have any other sons? Oh, I, we've got this little, we've got the youngest. He's a little shepherd boy. He's out in the field. He's probably dirty, smells like sheep. Bring him. So Samuel brings, no, so Jesse brings his son and when Samuel sees David, God says, this is the one, anoint him king. So from an unknown family in an unknown town, God would choose a king from a little unknown little shepherd boy. 
And from this little shepherd boy, he would become a king. And from this lineage would come another king born in Bethlehem. Think about this. Micah, he's looking to the past at the promise God made to David. He's looking into the future of a king born in Bethlehem, again, who will come to set his people free. But not only that, he's, he's even looking beyond that into the, into the future eternity, into a kingdom that's established that will endure forever and ever and ever. King Jesus would come from a humble yet, yet royal lineage that will never end. We, we read about it in Revelation. The seventh angel blew his trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Who is our king? He's the king who comes from a humble place and a humble yet royal lineage. I want you to see one more thing. He comes for the glory of God. Look back in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Did you catch those two words? Who will come forth for me. God is speaking. He says that there's one coming and it's, it's for him. This is a Christmas gift. And on the, on the little gift tag, it doesn't have the name Judah on it. It doesn't have the name Israel on it. It doesn't have the name Jerusalem or Hezekiah on it. It has the name God on it. This king is coming to magnify the splendor and glory and majesty of God's sovereign and redemptive plan. See, this is where our Jewish friends, they miss it. See, they're they're looking for a, a king that will come for them. They're looking for one who will establish an, an earthly kingdom, one who will restore the Jerusalem temple, one who will gather the Jews back to the land of Israel, one who will usher in a, an era of world peace. But that's not the king that Micah is speaking about here. This king has a, has a greater purpose. We see the same, almost the same language back in Samuel. When David was anointed king, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Speaking about God deciding to to withdraw his presence, his anointing on Saul and give it to David. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. In Acts 13, we, we see similar language. Then they, they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, 
I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Who is this king? He's one coming for the glory of God. He's coming to carry out the will of God. So what is the will of God? So Jesus, he was born in a manger and he's gathering with the disciples and he clearly shares what the will of God and why he came. Listen to this from John chapter 3. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will, be, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, birth of Christ, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you get that? See, Jesus, he didn't come to conquer earthly kingdoms. He didn't come to... to to take out the enemies of the Jews and to set up a kingdom centered there in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in the humble town of Bethlehem in order to to live a perfect life and eventually make his way to a rugged cross just outside of Jerusalem. He would go to that cross in order to become, well, he would be that perfect substitutionary sacrifice. He would give his life in order to pay the penalty of our sin. Jesus says that everyone who turns from their sin and looks to him in in faith will have eternal life. They will never die. They will be raised up when he comes again. Who is this king? He's the one born in Bethlehem from the lineage of David who's come to bring salvation to all who would Turn from sin and trust and believe in him to the glory of God. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. This morning, would you receive him as king? This is the good news of the gospel. It's that good news of great joy that the angels proclaimed among those shepherds. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This good news is the gospel. Jesus was born in a manger. He lived a perfect life so that we, in our desperate situation, in our sin that carried with it the penalty of sin and death. He went to the cross and took that for you and for me. And then as we turn from our sin and trust in him, as we repent and believe in him as that king, he gives us eternal life. Would you turn to the king today? If you don't know this king, would you turn to him today?
I'll be down at the front after the service. Many of our pastors and staff will be at the doors. We mingle around. Come talk to us. We'd love to tell you what it means to, to follow Christ. Maybe ask your friend or a family member what it means to take hold and embrace the King. Who is this king? Who is this king? His name is Jesus. But what will the king do? That's our second question. What will the king do? Let's look here. First, we see that the king rules. Verse 2. It says that he will be ruler in, in Israel. He doesn't, again, he doesn't rule by conquering nations. He rules by conquering sin and death. Another prophet, Zechariah, said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he. This king comes to to defame and destroy the devil who once had power over death. His credit card, he might swipe it and it's just denied, declined. His privileges have been revoked. His power has been transferred, reauthorized to Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, listen to what he says. It says, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, that's what Micah is pointing to in his prophecy. This, this king will rule by defeating our spiritual enemy. Not a physical enemy, a spiritual enemy. Then he, he'll come and set his people free from the bondage of death. Our king comes to rule and defame our enemy. But not only does he rule, he also shepherds his people. Our king doesn't, he doesn't carry around a, a gold-plated scepter with one of those little crystal ball things up on the top and stand there like this. No. Our king carries a shepherd's staff. Jesus described him in John 10 as the, as the good shepherd. You know that passage. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. See, this is a king who, who shepherds his people by giving up his life. 30, year, 30 years earlier in the time of Micah, his contemporary there, Isaiah, prophesied about this shepherd who would, who would become a suffering servant. He writes in chapter 53, Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. All of us, every one of us have, have gone astray. We're lost in the woods. And the good shepherd has found us, and brought us in by giving up his life. Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. You were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Micah's passage tells us that, the, that Jesus shepherds his flock in the, in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. In each of these phrases, that word Lord, it's, it's actually the word Yahweh. It's, it's that covenant-keeping God. It's the, it's the God who, who loves us, who's, who's, who's made promises for us, who will keep it, who's devoted to us. Jesus is the, he's, he's this shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and raises them up so that, that we were once broken in relationship might be restored to Yahweh, to this covenant-keeping God. He's the one who heals our wounds so that we can once again worship this coming King, worship our Father and Savior. He heals our wounds. And he leads us in restoration of our covenant God. You know, Jesus, he's, he's our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us lie, in, lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. What does the king do? He, he rules. He shepherds. I want you to see one more thing that the king does. does. He, he brings security and peace. Look there at the end of verse 4 and end of verse 5. It says, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Again, we hear a lot of the parallels from Isaiah. You know that familiar passage. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son of, is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, this king, he's going to come and he's going to establish a new spiritual kingdom that will have, that well, will, will, the effects of sin will, will be no more. It, the effects of sin will have no, no power over the people. The people, God will, through Christ, is going to establish us secure. There will be no injustice. No brokenness, no suffering, no pain, no disease, no despair, no hunger, no thirst, no death. Micah is speaking about one, this Christ who's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come and die on a cross. He's going to establish his kingdom. And one day he's going to come. He's going to return. 
and sin will be no more. Our kingdom will be secure. What does the king do? He enables us to dwell secure in him. He's our hope this Christmas and forevermore. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel the sting of loss this Christmas season. After the passing of a loved one, he is your peace. Maybe you're facing a difficult diagnosis. Future seems unsure. He is your peace. Maybe you're in the middle of a significant trial. Maybe your marriage is on the, on the brink, struggles. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's other relationships. Maybe things in, the own, in your own family. Jesus is your peace. He is our peace. Paul says in Ephesians 3.14 that Jesus himself is our peace. We just read it in Isaiah. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Maybe you're wondering what happened to me as I sat on that dirt road off, just off of Weddington Trail. No phone or water and really no knees. I was in trouble. A couple of hours went by and there was no sign of help. This was a dirt road. I don't think anyone traveled down. And off in the distance, I could see a light. Little by little, it was getting brighter and larger. And all of a sudden, that light turned into to two, and I realized that it was a vehicle coming my way. The headlights. And it came right to where I was and stopped. Lo and behold, the door opened. Kevin McCullum stepped out. <laughs> and this is what he said. Do you need a ride? That night, he was my rescuer. <laughs> every one of us in this room, every one of us in this room, were in a much desperate, much more desperate situation. Our sin had us in bondage. Micah says, a light is coming. He's going to be born. He was born in Bethlehem. His name is Jesus. I hopped into the car with Kevin, and we, like, wow, we've got to get to the trailhead. I'm, I'm sure my wife is worried, sick. He had water there. I took down a thing of water. We went to the trailhead, and there were vehicles all over the place. Search and rescue was there. There were ATVs out all over the place, police vehicles. Uh, they had the, the dogs, you know, that they go out with. There was one of these big, huge vans and um, the guy said, hey, no, we, we showed up there. And it, it, it's kind of like, it's almost like they were disappointed. <laughs> I, I get out and it's like, hey, here he, he we found, I, I found him. Oh, 
all right, cage the dogs back up. It's a wrap. You know, it's, it's kind of like a fireman getting to a, you know, a, a structure file only to find that it's a false alarm. I mean, it's like, it's like hey, guys, you know, they're like, hey, could you do us a favor? There's a van here, and it's got all this satellite equipment, and man, he was excited about getting to use this and all that. Could you just go inside there and, and look at it? And I'm like, man, I'm ready to go home. I mean, look at my knees. Look at the, the scrapes all over my legs. <laughs> Good times. The people in Micah's day were lost. They needed to be rescued just like I did. But not by a, not by a man. They needed rescuing from a savior, from a king. You know, right now, maybe like Judah, everything was good with them. And may, maybe in your life, everything seems good at the moment. But most likely, there will be some dark clouds. Who is your hope? Who is your king? There's a Christmas promise for for anyone with ears to hear and eyes to see. It's the promise foretold by Micah some 700 years ago that a king would be born in the humble town of Bethlehem from the humble lineage of David. He would come to rule, shepherd, and to establish everlasting peace to all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. Is Is he your king? Is he your king? Why not bow in submission to him today? If you know him, it's the Christmas season. Don't get wrapped up in all the, all the glamour and the materialism. It's all good family and the food. Remember, there's a king who has come to rescue us. Give praise to God for that king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Christmas promise fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, the only King and Savior. Thank you for rescuing us from sin and and bringing us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we praise the one who's been highly exalted and given the name that's above every name. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Jesus. And it's in that wonderful, priceless, exalted name that we pray. Amen.